Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chen, and with me I have Kevin Dong, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster-affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Hello, everyone. We're recording this session as part of a, a live session with the, uh, with the Emergency Medicine Residency Program with the first and second year residents. Annually, Kevin and I have been giving this talk about tech and medicine and Tech and medicine has been changing so rapidly that sometimes I feel like I am behind the game before I even like pick up a magazine or a journal article. And so I thought, why not bring some people in from the leading edge? Kevin, do you want to contextualize a little bit about, you know, some big changes around here that maybe we have been experiencing that kind of foretell the, the future a little bit? Well, I'm excited for this podcast. We, we do this every year for the PGY2s and, and I guess the junior residents. And so last year, we also had our same guest, uh, and we have an, also the special guest on top of that too this year. So I'm really excited for today's talk, and uh, I hope that our learners will also take something out of this. Uh, technology and medicine is ever-growing, like the uh, parallel to our society as, as it is, and I think it's important for us as clinicians and, and non-clinicians who are interested in the medical field to have exposure to this so that uh, we can be leading edge in taking care of our patients going forward. Super cool. I think tech is one of those areas where it's moving so fast. Um, Most of us who are in the clinical realm, we have key insights into what goes wrong, but we need partners who can code in Python and understand machine learning algorithms and build something uh, to help us build better systems. Um, And so I'm going to kick it to um, Sarah, who is a bit of a guest of honor today because uh, she's just newly joined our division of emergency medicine. She is one of our part-time uh, assistant profs, um, and she comes to us by way of the Division of Education and Innovation. But I think she's been hanging out with too many emerge docs, and so she thought, why not uh, hang out with us for a little bit? Um, she also has a pretty cool job at the University of Waterloo, which is a hotbed for innovation for sure, world-renowned. And she is the director of something called the Velocity Incubator Program. I think that's what you call it, Sarah. Do you want to do you want to tell people about what that is? For sure. So uh, the Velocity Incubator is actually part of a larger uh, thing called Velocity. And so what we what we do is we help to create opportunities for people to explore their entrepreneurial interests and, and ambitions. And then the portion of it that I'm the director of, which is the incubator, is for individuals who either from the University of Waterloo or external to the University of Waterloo come to us with a great idea, a great team, a great opportunity to make a difference. And we bring them in, we advise them on how to exactly to structure their business, how to develop out their technology. We help them raise money with investors and we help them basically grow, scale, and then be successful businesses. And so over the course of uh, the last 15 years, Velocity has actually created uh, over $26 billion in value for the companies that it's generated. And so it's huge, uh, especially in the Canadian context. And so really excited to talk more about it and also share 
how others can can learn to be uh, innovators like that too. All right. So exciting to have someone like you who is really at the leading edge, right? These incubator programs really catch the giants um, of the future on the rise. So it's really cool to have someone who's really at the leading edge of this uh, speaking to us today. And uh, Dr. Rose, Christian, do you want to tell, tell us a little bit about yourself? Some of the people that I choose may recognize you, but uh, the crowd that's listening is probably not going to know who you are. So do you want to go ahead and give it a roll? Of course. Well, tough act to follow. Um, Sarah, it sounds like really, really fun work. My name is uh, Christian Rose. I'm an emergency physician um, in the Bay Area at Stanford now. I did my training at UCSF. I am sort of a full stack informaticist. Um, and basically, by that, I mean, I've been doing informatics too long and it's super broad, like emergency medicine, and basically always had an interest in the technological or use of technologies in medicine since college, I guess, and then took that into medical school. And through residency and did a fellowship in it at Stanford and stayed on now as faculty where I do research on um, information technologies, AI, or like human processes that are affected by our computational systems and other elements of how we do the work that we do in medicine. But one of my other roles and other hats that I wear because the technology is sort of all around us in the Bay Area is also run a new uh, technology evaluation group called the STEP group in the uh, Stanford Emergency Department where we have like potentially uh, partners in industry who have technologies, whether, you know, new incision and drainage devices, new ring removal technologies, or various like AI implementations for the EHR. Um, We've evaluated like 60 plus companies in the last year and a half and started pilot projects with them um, to try to help people help us improve our practice in a way that's, you know, authentic to the experience and needs of the emergency providers. And so basically, I've just been doing it long enough that I sort of do everything from the problem uh, definition to the implementation and evaluation elements. Um, and I did my fellowship actually at a, a center called the Center for Innovation to Implementation. So I guess it's kind of fitting that that's uh, what I do now. Um, it's really nice to be here again. Thank you for having me, uh, Teresa. It's, it's so exciting to be back. Very cool. Many of us are probably just Googling exactly that center right now because it sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. All right. So I'm going to kick it off uh, with the first question and then uh, Kevin and I will alternate back and forth a little bit uh, with questions. But I'm going to throw it out there. But I think one of the big things I want to ask is uh, what are some trends in technology right now that you and I or all of us are using every day that we haven't thought about how we might be able to use it in everyday life? So uh, what are some you know, signals and trends from out there in the world that we should pay attention to because we should be thinking about how it could port over to what we do? It's a really, really good question. I try to think a lot about this. I wonder everybody else's perspectives. For me, I'm, I'm pretty biased in thinking that the way in which the technological world, um, and by that I mean like Amazon, Google, Apple, have utilized data to understand workflows and things that we do on an everyday basis. You know, they make up uh, mock up what the average person living in New York, working a nine to fives day looks like when they leave Brooklyn and what buildings they pass by and what they're likely to do and spend their money on in a day. Um, that's a whole field called like process mining, which gets a little scary with how, how accurately the tech world can predict our behaviors from just us doing the stuff we want to on our phone and walking around and you know existing. Sort of ambient is the word they would use for that. 
in medicine, we've, you know, had a lot of transitions over to electronic health records. I know that was last time we talked, you guys were getting ready for big transitions um, in your shops as well. It's hard to imagine, but basically we're getting to a place where just doing the medicine and having these technologically uh, minded basis for that or the EHR tracking what we do. We're getting to a place of real world evidence and an ability to sort of understand how medicine is actually practiced and where the gaps are, where the areas of high variability are, where things can be streamlined to help us as clinicians. We're not like quite there yet, but in terms of your question for like things that are happening in our everyday lives that might make it into medicine, I think the idea that the computer will just tell us exactly what the patient has as they walk in the door is probably a little bit far off and we need some more research in that uh, in that area, except for maybe like radiographs and skin images, like imaging computers are pretty good at figuring out. Um, but for all the rest of how healthcare is delivered, um, there's real opportunity to help us understand that through things that the technology world has sort of mastered. And we just need to start to think a little differently about the ways in which we adapt, change, look for problems in medicine. Uh, that's you know similar and analogous to the traditional research, but maybe utilizing some of the newer things that we have in our arsenal that are just part of what we do. Okay. Uh, anything to add, Sarah? And then if not, Kevin will ask the next question. And I'm happy to add, uh, that was a great overview, Christian. Lots of things that are super exciting are happening. And I think what I'd say is uh, two things. I think this overarching trend towards uh, the engaged patient and then a push towards almost a uh, democratization of who is able to build technologies. And so on the first point with the engaged patient, there's, there is this huge shift towards a larger option pool, a greater uh, ability to access information, whether that is relevant and valid information or not relevant and valid information. And so I would say that with greater option pools, the value proposition of what healthcare is able to deliver is all the more important to, to emphasize and to communicate clearly. And perhaps there is a bit of a push to move away from simply rely on evidence-based practices and more rely on social proof. And social proof is more and more uh, dictating how people behave, how people choose, what they want to go after, uh, what they select from the options that are available. And so leaning into that notion of it truly is patient-oriented, uh, consumer-oriented, and they are making decisions for what they want. That's, a, I think, a huge shift uh, that we just need to grow to appreciate and learn how to work with it. And then the second thing around democratization of the building of technologies, there's plenty of no-code solutions. There's, you know, chat GBT. There's so many different things out there already that just makes it easy to either use leading edge technologies or build your own. And so I'm not saying that all the doctors should go and build their own applications, but in the age where it is so easy to build a proof of concept to demonstrate that something actually could have potential to, to create value that isn't already there, there's going to be a lot of movement towards the everyday person being able to create the first spark towards change. And so being aware of that and also being open to the fact that perhaps not everything has to come from a huge corporation 
or huge uh, randomized clinical trials to actually be worth listening to is something we need to try to think about in healthcare and work with those ideas based on an evaluation of value that is potential value as opposed to demonstrated value will help us actually continue to innovate in healthcare at a faster rate and make sure that the needs of the patient are being met as quickly as possible in line with the first trend that I mentioned. Very cool. Kevin, do you want to ask the next question? Yeah, that, that those are really cool principles. I, I like that kind of using, uh, I don't want to say social media, but kind of not just using the big corporations like, you know, we have Telus and other big com- companies that create, like, for example, EMRs that we dictate, but this seems like there's opportunities for crowdfunding or small companies or small, just number of people that want to try some grassroots ideas. Are, are there potential dangers to that, though, considering that it may come from like you said, maybe non-evidence-based routes that can cause potentially, you know, differences in opinions that may not come from an evidence-based that may be dangerous from a clinical point of view. Can can you comment a little bit on that, Sarah, since you were the one that mentioned that? Yeah, definitely. So it's a fabulous question uh, with a fabulous answer. And the answer is that when you're talking about, is it safe? Is it appropriate that so many ideas are coming forward and we could potentially action them or they could be actioned to develop new value in healthcare? It's a risk, of course, but risk has control mechanisms. And so that's where regulatory and legal and just how the way clinical work happens, all these frameworks need to be created and need to have an easy way of being enforced to actually be able to manage all of the ideas and all the new technologies that are coming to the table. And so right now, the huge problem is that technology goes really quick, develops very, very quickly. Teresa, like you were mentioning at the beginning, you don't, you can't even tell what the, what the new day is going to bring in terms of what's new and exciting. Everything is new and exciting. There's always a world of possibilities. However, the legal, the regulatory, and all these control mechanisms, they don't actually change fast enough to know what to do with all these emerging things. And so you've got this tension that is beginning to exist between those who want to create, those who want to do, and will build things and put them in front of people, and those that are less risk, uh, well, they are more risk averse, I should say, and they want to make sure that everything is, you know, checked and the T's are properly crossed and I's are properly, properly dotted. But that's just not possible using current processes and systems. And so we're actually at this point where we need to rethink the ways in which we review and evaluate risk and perhaps even get into a way of working with these startups, working with these emerging technologies where we help to co-create as opposed to trying to uh, suppress and control everything. That would be my reaction. I like that a lot. I think that's a great um, question, Kevin. I think about this a lot. Um, As many of us, I'm sure, have been patients as well. The idea of sort of democratizing a lot of healthcare and also bringing things to the patient um, making change a possibility in healthcare is something a lot of people are pushing for, at least the way I, I heard uh, Sarah talk about, you know, her, the future. I agree with all of those concepts. And even 
one of the elements from sort of the history of science, which was my like second major in college. And I think about these like trends and historical perspectives a lot is it's kind of just the way things are going and going to be, but we are the actively engaged players in this space. I think there are for sure risks to the innovative mindset of fail fast and often. I bring that up a lot. It worries me in healthcare because you have people's lives and even one person suffering is potentially bad. You have examples of this and things like using, you know, raspberry Pi to control insulin and having people change and regulate their own insulin levels and patient-centered outcomes do not often align necessarily with big statistical studies and the medical literature. And so an individual's outcomes can differ, obviously, you know, from individualized medicine from what maybe the rest of the population would like or can engage with for various barriers. Then you get to the last like element. Well, do you have the genius of the crowd um, or like the tyranny of the masses? And it's hard. It's really hard to know. The the point that Sarah makes, I think that this is just sort of where we're going and that's the way it's going to be. I totally agree with as well, which actually to me reflects back on us that being an engaged participant in this and making sure to understand, learn the language of the technological world and how people look at uh, innovation, technologies, and the advancement of medicine and whose interests are being benefited is really the first place to start. And we can all do that. Um, and I would, you know, pause it back to like the audience, you know, that's why just listening, seeing what people are doing and having a perspective is often the first place to start with forming a good idea around a problem and identifying a thing that needs fixing, not just technologies that you can play around with and you're sandboxing, but really addressing problems um, that need to be um, fixed either by the clinician side, the patient side, or the overlap of the two. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this all uh, settles out, but it's where things are going and at least learning language is sometimes a good first step. Yeah, and, and I imagine just like with many complex problems, it, it's not going to be this single person that goes out there and fixes these things anymore, right? Although we kind of have the great person or often great man theory of leadership, you know, your Steve Jobs and your uh, Bill Gates, you know, I think the way that technology is headed is that these are going to be teams that tackle these. And, and I think that that's where if you're someone that identifies more as a clinician, for instance, then you, you need partners like Sarah to hook you up with you know, uh, being advisor to tech uh, endeavors and having access to the talent that can make some of your dreams come true. I, I don't know that it's going to be, you know, the the person in the garage tinkering around with like one other person. You know, I, th I think that those days of tech are probably gone because of the complexity of some of the problems, especially in healthcare, that we really want to tackle. So I think uh, multidisciplinary collaborative teams are probably the way that we're going to really create great value for the people that are in the system and so that totally resonates with me that um you're going to need to know the language enough to talk to these other folks but that maybe it doesn't mean that just because you didn't learn to code in python yet that that means you can't be involved right so i know that christian you went and did a whole informatics degree do you I'm just going to ask, like, do you think that someone who's not an informatician, uh, informatician or informaticist, um, I think you've used both terms to me, uh, do you think that you have to go and do something like that? Or do you think there's ways that you could get involved in other ways? And I'd love to know Sarah's opinion of that, too, because I know that there's different people that come at it from different points of view. 
It's a great question. I think, you know, as many people often be like, oh, let me put my like um, ACGME uh, hat on and say like, yeah, informatics uh, fellowship is great. Um, There's formal training that I think, you know, one might need to do in order to become a board certified subspecialist in informatics, um, which can be an informatician or an informaticist. Those two words are actually interchangeable according to the uh, American Medical Informatics Association. I think that there are certain benefits to formalized training in anything, which I know, Theresa, you think a lot about. What, what are things that can be picked up through didactic and really focused, you know, lectures and degrees? And what are things that can be democratized? You know much more even about that than I do. And so I'm excited for when informatics becomes uh, part of the teach and disruption um, cycle. But I would also argue that a lot of this is stuff that's happening in the world around us and learning and picking up sort of biosmosis and diffusion is possible. I sometimes analogize these to um, two types of like innovation, um, like open source and then like skunk works. If you think of like open source, people are sharing information and they're changing things by hearing about each other's problem and sharing code snippets and able to like iterate. And you usually have some level of evolution and knowledge growth that can be kind of gradual versus when studied like skunk works, like deep thinking uh, groups that get paid a lot of money to try to like completely disrupt a technology, um, either like in DARPA, in the military or, you know, at, at a major organization like Google or Microsoft. They have the time and space to sit and tackle and lean in and they're like funded to do those things. So it's hard to compare those two, you know, apples and oranges. I think it is definitely possible to get the education you need for the problem you want to solve on your own. And again, I, I look to teach and to make that possible for people. But I also think there's something to be said for if you want to be a chief uh, innovation or information officer um, at a hospital system, and you need to learn about like the legal framework, the hierarchy of technology levels for which the different channels of communication happen, such that you can understand infrastructure and the groundwork for innovation, then you probably need to sit with that for a little while. And you need to um, get some in-depth and on-site experience, much like we do in emergency medicine. You know, some of it's the apprenticeship and some of it's the real, you know, nose in the book and focusing and learning on some of the uh, principles. So well, maybe a little bit of both. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, Sarah, you sent me a text earlier with a really cool infographic about, you know, the difference between entrepreneur that works outside of the system and something called an intrapreneur. So I thought maybe I'd bring that up and, and get your reactions to the way that Christian's kind of describing being involved in this new wave of technologies that, or even just the future. Yeah. So do you want me to touch on the educational requirements as well? Yeah. Yeah. As an integration with the. All right. Awesome. So I actually think that uh, we need to step back and consider what education is for. And if we consider that education is for uh, the acquisition of some sort of marker, like a credential of some kind, then we have to think about what that credential is supposed to mean. And so in some cases, an academic credential provides you with the permission to do something. So for instance, you go and you are trained to become a doctor, you have to pass certain exams, you get your permission to be a doctor. In many situations, there's also sort of like a baseline requirement for certain jobs to have credentials. And they use it as uh, an easy way to determine whether you should know what something is, or you have no idea. And so you may not be a good fit for that particular role. And so 
consider education from that perspective as well. Now, entrepreneurship really isn't about having permission to do anything. Okay. It's about taking permission to do something. And so entrepreneurship is a lot more around listening, observing, pattern recognition, and being able to do something in what uh, something called the YC, so the Y Combinator um, in California, calls uh, being formidable. And what being formidable means in the entrepreneurship context is saying you're going to do something and doing it. Saying you're going to do something, overcoming the barrier, finding a workaround, doing it. And so I just want to highlight that entrepreneurs are not necessarily trained. Getting a degree in entrepreneurship really doesn't mean anything other than you can talk about entrepreneurship. To be an entrepreneur, it's a process of doing. And so some of the entrepreneurs that I'm familiar with, they're very, very good at creating powerful teams. They're very, very good at making sure that they have the right advisors around them. They're very, very good at making sure that they access the right resources when they need them. They're very, very good at selling the vision of what they're trying to accomplish. School doesn't really teach you how to do those things. Knowing how to do those things is actually through observing others doing those things, whether it's your parents or your peers or people you work with. And you learn as you go. And so you, you usually get better over time with feedback of various sorts. You get better, you improve. And usually people are excellent entrepreneurs by their second or third company. The first company is usually a disaster. Okay. So let's just start there. So entrepreneurship in my mind is really not about education. Now, in terms of what Teresa was mentioning around entrepreneurship versus entrepreneurship, for the sake of definitions, entrepreneurship is the creation of value that is not necessarily inside of an existing organization, whereas intrapreneurship is around creating new value within a particular organizational context. And so in both ways, you are creating new value. So you're making something better, faster, and more efficient. Maybe it's a new thing that doesn't exist yet. So that gets us into incremental versus disruptive innovation, which you can Google it if you'd like, but I'm not going to spend too much time on what those are. However, the key difference between entrepreneur and entrepreneur is where they actually play. And so when we consider entrepreneurship, usually this person is someone who works within an organization already. They have deep insights into the types of problems that exist within the organization. They can sort of see the gaps and they understand the people that also work within that organizational context. And so they know the rules. They usually know the right people to make requests of. They know how power dynamics work. And they can negotiate. Uh, they can uh, create buy-in. They can generate uh, enough buzz. They have a good sense of what is the right timing. And they are able to sense their way into creating something that is new and exciting, and they make it stick. Entrepreneurs are external to organizations. They create their own organization that is creating new ways for people to receive value. And so entrepreneurs can either create new forms of value technologies, if you will, for businesses or for individuals. And so that's called B2B businesses or B2C businesses. And so depending on the type of customer that you have, 
you may behave a little differently. However, for an entrepreneur, what is important is to get proof of the fact that something is needed. So they need to kind of go a little bit extra with getting that proof that an entrepreneur perhaps didn't need to get because they're already well acquainted with where that uh, innovation would actually need to be embedded. The entrepreneur uh, needs to get a little bit more salesy, if you will, with creating interest in what they're actually doing, create excitement. Depending on who your customer is, that is either very difficult or that could be very easy, depending on how many regulatory or legal hurdles usually exist to actually get it adopted. And so you'll find that entrepreneurs, they move much faster, whereas an entrepreneur may be more politically astute and inclined to align with the organizational objectives, policies, and timing. An entrepreneur wants to get things done fast. They want things to go well. They will go and get money from venture capitalists, whereas usually an entrepreneur has funding that they can lobby for or get access to internally. And so entrepreneurs do everything externally, huge sales job, huge uh, mobilization effort to create the right team, create all the resourcing for an organization to come into existence. And then they have to make the sale and go to market and demonstrate that they have a sustainable business model. So there are similarities for sure, but hopefully I've flagged the differences. And so for some, entrepreneurship is actually a better choice than entrepreneurship, uh, but it really depends on where your area of interest is for, for where change is needed. That's really cool. And it's good to see that there's so many wide array of skills, not just in in medicine, but in technology and other areas where people can, you know, tr- use their expertise or what they're good at, whether it's entrepreneurship or entrepreneurship, because that may actually have a different set of skills to become efficient in one or the other. So mm-hmm. that's really cool to to know about that and um, and to kind of think about where you, where I or where anybody us kind of sit in, in terms of our skill set mm-hmm. and and how that can apply to to technology and in medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, may I, may I, I, what, I just kind of sorry. Can I address ahead. the question that that or the point that Christian made in the chat? So for, for the sure. danger the danger when creating excitement uh, when it outweighs truth or what the technology is actually able to do. So that's an excellent point and I want to say that in the Theranos case, the investors and the advisors didn't do what's called the due diligence to make sure that what was being claimed was true. And so with complex technologies at Velocity, we call them deep technologies, ones that are highly complex from a technological perspective. They're super resource intensive. It's usually really hard to get to a market-ready product. But for those types of um, solutions, those kind of technologies, you need investors who understand the detail, or you need to work with investors who need to understand the detail. And so another thing that is actually an opportunity for people who are in healthcare to get involved with innovation is to be advisors for investment groups or to eventually go into um, an investor group. There's something called Halo Health. uh, It operates in Ontario and I think in all of Canada. It's basically a group of clinicians that invest in companies. They're not quite a venture capital uh, firm. They're, They're angel investors, so smaller amounts of cash, not millions and millions of dollars, but smaller amounts, usually 100,000, 200,000 when they actually pull everything together. But it's another opportunity to get involved 
and really provide deep insights because of your clinical expertise. So I just wanted to make make sure that's flagged because I think that was it's often Elizabeth Holmes who's uh, who's labeled as the the bad person, but I think she was just able to take advantage of a system that was not built to actually succeed at reviewing and uh, doing the due diligence for those kind of technologies. Yeah, I wouldn't want to interrupt. Uh, I'm sure Kevin seems to have a really good question coming up too. But one of the no, things no, that this is great. Keep going, me, please. In the informatics uh, world, is the sort of conflation of technology, innovation, and entrepreneurship. Um, I'm sure there's other things that get conflated in there too. But you can be an entrepreneur for you know a new dog ball throwing device. There actually is a group of EM docs in San Francisco who, because of non-compete clauses, have decided to try to use their entrepreneurship <laughs> towards other like non-medically related devices because they work at a uh, major healthcare organization who doesn't allow you to have medically related businesses on the side. Um, you can innovate in the same sort of space too. You could be someone that's like an inventor and likes to try to make new things and looks for gaps, but is not interested in the business application. And you can be interested in technology, which I would liken to the tech that we are talking about effectively involves innovation, entrepreneurship, and computer technologies, but technologies are more like a machine, a way to get to use knowledge to get something done is what the like definition of technology is. So that could be lots of things. I love Sarah's point though, of like there are different elements to all of this. And for you guys, whatever you're interested in, super lean into, I consult for people, lots of people I know consult for people to try to help them understand problems. It's called like, you know, problem definition and scoping, which is hugely important and product market fit, which is really important for early companies. So they don't spend money on a thing that they maybe shouldn't because it's not a problem. Secondly, there's balance. Those each will now have a balance where just checking yourself and gut checking, you might realize you're in something that totally has in the American you know, model, a really great sales pitch, like tons of money, a total applicable market, a TAM that is um, addressable market that is like um, billions and billions of dollars, but it's a problem that actually is a policy one. And that is a problem with the way we um, pay for healthcare. So someone would say, you can make a ton of money on this. It's a great idea. It's a super simple and innovative solution. But the only reason you can make money on it is because of the system around you versus there can be a really bootstrapped solution to a problem that every ED doc is seeing that actually won't make money because people can replicate it. I've seen things like ways to hold ultrasound probes to say that people can just make up in their ED on their own. And you're like, no one will ever actually buy this, but you have addressed and you have helped understand a problem that lots of people have for like procedural guidance. So these are different things. They get conflated a lot and that's okay. As long as you remember which one you're talking about, like a successful um, technological company uh, innovation winds up having a really good business sense. But sometimes there are good things that are the right one to do because it's the way the future is going that don't have a market yet or will in the future. So some people predict what future markets based on where things are right now and they have to wait for the right time. Um, and so my example for some of the things like this is like, you know, Galileo and Copernicus were right, but unfortunately at the wrong time in history for their like scientific knowledge to be appreciated um, by the people around them. The rest of society has to be ready for these things. And sometimes there has to be like a business uh, model for a technology or innovation to be successful, which is something that I don't think I really, really appreciated a ton, a ton while in training because you're like, this is the way it should be. but 
unless there are market forces, there's it's going to be hard. Exactly. And just quick example of that. So at the end of the last re- recession, a lot of, um, oh gosh, I'm, I'm missing the word, but uh, a lot of similar types of businesses that were more, sorry, in the sharing economy, there you go, the sharing economy uh, happened right after the recession. So in 2008, that recession. And so that's when Airbnb came in. That's when Uber came in. Everyone was very price sensitive, right? And so it's those kind of factors, those kind of market forces that Christian's referring to, that will be the stimulus for adoption, high adoption of those kind of technologies. This is great. I just wanted to keep it going. <laughs> yeah. I love the bounce back of ideas. <laughs> um, yeah. Does any of the residents have things like, um, yeah. I feel like, you know, it's hard to know for who else will listen to this, but I feel like it's easy. I imagine for Sarah, myself, you guys, Kevin, Teresa, too, you've heard, seen a lot of things and it, you begin to be able to tease apart, like what's a good idea, what will really hit. And I know that sounds like there's just like, you kind of know with the team, but there are so many elements to success. That's why the majority of entrepreneurial endeavors still fail. And that's why a lot of studies that are you know funded by major research organizations are meant to explore these places because it's hard to get all of it together at once. Um, and so we see the things in our hand that we use every day, and those are the winners. But understanding the sort of nuance between what makes a good team, what makes someone who's humble as well, I think I see that in really good teams, people who are open to being wrong, um, as opposed to someone who's like, I just, we have so much riding on this, we need it to be successful, and they'll go, they'll go anywhere to get a sale. Once you're learning to look out for those things and be aware of the different competing demands, it can help you navigate what you think is important and what you want to solve. Um, and again, I, there's a lot of space for everyone in this group to, there's no shortage of problems, one of my mentors said too. It's just, you know, having the perspective and the ability to sort of understand what's the right time to solve something and is it the right problem to go about for you. Yeah. I mean, I think we're always in emerge because our clinical jobs are so hard sometimes looking for that other space to play. And so, um, you know, many of the trainees, but also many of the practicing docs that might be listening to this, you might be looking for something outside of just going and doing your shifts and then clocking in and clocking out. Because I think that there's career longevity in having something outside of just the clinical care to do. And so maybe the things that you thought that you wanted to do, they're just not hitting it. Maybe you're just tired of running a pain clinic. Maybe maybe that entrepreneurial spark that you had in, in forming some kind of research project or some kind of QI project, maybe, maybe you were dissatisfied. And, and I think that that's where some of the beauty in knowing that there's other kinds of pursuits that you might have, such as the ones that all of you have listed, being part of a startup, advising, consulting, um, being entrepreneurial, being entrepreneurial. These are all all different avenues for people to, to share. So Kevin, final thoughts, maybe? Yeah, I just, I guess maybe just the last quick question, uh, and then we can, and, and then maybe that would be a good actually segue to the end would be, you know, I'm sure some of the the listeners here and also listeners wide may have questions. And, you know, they they're taking away from this saying, hey, I could be an entrepreneur or entrepreneur or entrepreneur, or you know, I have ideas, or you know, I want to get out of what I'm doing for now and have a second thing. What do you guys have? An, and maybe they don't want to do a formal education, like right? especially what Sarah said, you may not need a formal education. Uh, it may just need a spark an idea and some motivation. Do you guys have any resources or conferences or places that they can go to? maybe get some stuff started? Because I find a lot of projects, maybe you you have a lot of ideas, but it's just it's about finding the right people 
and going to the right places. Uh, but sometimes it's hard to get started because you don't know where to go. Uh, any any tips on maybe some conferences that you could attend to or websites that, you know, some resources they can find to, to kind of get a little bit more information about technology and uh, and how it relates to medicine? Well, I, I think um, there's probably no shortage of these. I was going to say that when I think of the ones that have been most rewarding and valuable to me, it's actually been quite small. You know, there's like Meetup was an app. I don't know. I imagine it exists in uh, Hamilton and stuff as well. Um, but there are, um, I tend to be a small person first and I try to meet up with people who have different knowledge bases, uh, engineers, client, like just a small crew to sort of allow you the psychological safety and space to sort of think about problems out loud first. At least that's the place I sort of go to as I like look inward, not to be entrepreneurial, but I kind of first look to the local crew. Meetings for some of these um, can be a good place to let ideas flow through. There's like HIMS, healthcare informatics or information uh, major like conferences great but that's like going to the consumer electronics like show and if you go there alone I, I get personally quite lonely at conferences that are large that i'm by myself at and i find them uninspiring so i've tended to go to some like hackathon meetups and things in san francisco i, I recognize that i happen to live in a very specific area where this has like been scaled in certain ways but from the evidence i think most places where there's educational centers universities tend to have small groups like this and to keep on the lookout sort of for like new friends. I know that's sort of a cop-out answer, but I've gone to the informatics and American Medical Informatics Association conferences. I've gone to technology conferences. And sometimes the bigger the conference, the smaller I feel and less engaged. Um, but going to things in real life and meeting people that might be part of my community is sort of like finding a good writing group and a group of people who can help you find answers in a way that's scalable. Awesome. I uh, just put a link in the chat. It's a free online course to just learn the basics of how to build a company. And so I would just encourage everyone to learn the basics. Don't uh, kind of start the startup ambition before you understand the general principle of how do you build a business. So this kind of course is good to just like give you a grounding and then you can go from there. However, um, yeah, just just talk to people. I I would love to send you to a conference. There's plenty of pitch competitions going on where you can meet startups. You can see how they pitch their ideas. You can get inspired by the kind of things that they're doing. You can talk to entrepreneurs. There's LinkedIn. There's Twitter. There's plenty of places where it's quite easy to direct message someone and just get a coffee chat and see what it's actually like. Uh, volunteer as a clinical advisor for a startup. Uh, if you contacted a med tech startup and asked, you know, just to have a conversation with them, there's an alignment. You kind of see eye to eye. Uh, something of value is, you know, something that you can say to them is a value to the development of their technology or thinking about how they actually implement um, within the clinical setting. All of these ways are just like to form connections and find ways in which you can ease yourself into the process. And don't forget that you're going to be a newbie. And so while you do have your area of expertise, be mindful that business, just like medicine, takes years to actually get good at. And so take it slow, be easy on yourself, be open, ears open, mind open to learning as much as you can from everyone around you. And 
once you find a good idea, start working on it, be open to it failing because it always does and uh, just get into the community. I think that approach will ease you into it, make sure that you have a good sense of how you want to get involved and also prevents you from committing the sin of presuming that you know how to do everything. And that's also uh, a high risk for, for things not working out. Excellent. And just for the listeners who are just listening, it's a Udacity course called How to Build a Startup. And that's a, a free um, resource that Sarah suggested, but Coursera and other kind of edX, they have these out there. Um, and I think that's all the time we have today. I, I would, can I, yeah. can I yeah. make, yeah. add one more comment? One just as a reminder that I try to, I try to remind myself too with all of these is just that if we're talking about technology and the application of knowledge for practical purposes, don't forget that like all of you are that knowledge. Um, and medicine is changing a lot right now. There's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of ways that people are feeling alone and siloed. And one of the last things I kind of give in any of my discussions on this on campus or elsewhere is that um, sticking by each other and identifying things and problems that we see, whatever they are, technological, like machine-based or not, um, change is about like, working on it together um, and listening to each other. And like, even just by joining a group of fellow physicians and having an outlet, you can provide change and you can solve problems in the current healthcare model. Um, avoid getting yourself siloed into your like own little uh, echo chamber. Um, and that way we can all get better together. Like we're, we're probably all the basis for that. Well, a high note to end off on. So thank you, Christian, for summarizing all that. Uh, for those of you who are listening and those of you who are here today, we thank you for your patience and and uh, and attention. And hopefully, if you're interested in getting in touch with uh, any of the speakers today, just reach out to us and uh, we'll help, help, you, uh, help you broker a new relationship. Maybe you'll find a new mentor. All right. Macklemore Joe. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Back and merge out.